Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. It gets a bit boring, said the stockbroker, Nicholas Winton, talking about the same thing for a hundred years. And a hundred years is a heck of a long time. Winton was speaking to the Guardian newspaper in 2014, at the grand old age of 105. And the thing he'd been talking about for, well, almost 100 years, was his own extraordinary effort to evacuate hundreds of Jewish children out of Eastern Europe at the start of the Second World War. Seven trains carried over 600 children through the heart of Nazi Germany to Holland where they took a ferry to the English coast. If they hadn't been rescued and brought over to England, these children would have been killed by the Nazis. But in fact, they were saved by an English stockbroker called Nicholas Winton. Winton, who died the year after that interview, is remembered now as the British Schindler, a heroic businessman who ultimately saved more than 600 young lives in what was then Czechoslovakia. He found the children, he laid on the trains, he figured out the legals, and he got them sponsors back in Britain, homes to live in. One of the kids he evacuated from Prague in 1939, a few months after Hitler's tanks rolled in, was a frightened six-year-old boy of Jewish descent called Alfred Dubbs. Alfred's family and friends who stayed behind were killed, but for the young Alf Dubbs and eventually his parents too, Britain offered sanctuary and the chance of a new life. Now 85 years later, Dubs can lay claim to being one of Britain's best-known refugees and one of Parliament's best-loved figures. Because as a young man growing up in post-war England, Alf Dubs developed a passion for politics. He became a Labour MP in 1979 and then a member of the House of Lords in 1994. Alf Dubbs has been a Labour peer for almost 30 years now. But it's been over the past decade, while in his 80s and 90s, that he's become a truly nationally recognised figure. So I think what we have to do is to give hope to the refugees. His campaigns demanding the British government open up new routes for child refugees during the recent and ongoing wars in Syria and Ukraine have made national news. Amendment E1, Lord Dubbs. I beg to move Amendment E1. The so-called Dubs Amendment, which he put forward in Parliament in 2016, rewrote Theresa May's Migration Bill to ensure shelter was being offered to unaccompanied children from war-ravaged countries. And as a country with strong humanitarian traditions, 
I believe we can do better. I beg to move. It was a rare and significant victory for an opposition backbencher in the House of Lords. Although May later reneged on the deal after just a few hundred children were allowed in. Now aged 90, Alf Dubbs is slim and sprightly and sharp as a tack and still able to make news when he wants to. His call last week for Britain to help refugee children out of war-torn Gaza made national headlines, though the government remains unmoved for now. He is generous with his time at our podcast studios here in London Bridge, full of stories and reflections about the war and his own long life. They threw her down the stairs and said permission refused, and she landed in a heap at the bottom of the stairs, and the only thing she remembered before she worked out if anything was broken was they threw a passport down after her, which gave her hope. He speaks passionately and with great sadness about the crisis in the Middle East, a war which, given his own Jewish background and his lifelong commitment to supporting the persecuted, he feels especially keenly at this time. Fellow human beings suffering, whether it's Israelis or Palestinians, I find it incredibly painful. And I suppose, with my background, it's even closer to me. But he has messages of hope, too about the difference that caring communities and governments and individuals can make to those in their direst hours of need. The more we try and understand what these people have come through, the more we are liable to be sympathetic and be positive and supportive. So from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm meeting Alfred Dubbs and asking a 90-year-old member of the House of Lords to reflect on a life well-lived. Lord Dubbs, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start by talking about the thing that everyone's talking about, which is the crisis in the Middle East. And, and you recently called for Britain to open up a refugee scheme for people from Gaza. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you think our government could be doing? Well, I think it's such, it's such a painfully difficult issue. And I think we've still got to work out how we can get negotiations going and how we can move towards some sort of peaceful progress. This is an impossible situation. It's terribly painful for the Israelis. It's painful for the Palestinians. And all the people are losing except for Hamas. Hamas seem to be exploiting the situation and and they're they're appalling people. But the Palestinians in Gaza are not all Hamas supporters and they deserve a better life, as do the Israelis. And do you think there's something specific, some sort of scheme that you'd like to see the British government thinking about, maybe for people in particular need in, in Gaza or something like that? Well I think I think there's a desperate need for to get food food, energy and medication in into Gaza. I mean I mean we're just punishing a civilian population, that, that, that's not even legal to do, to do that. I mean, we're not punishing them, the Israelis are. I think we have to go for a ceasefire. I know it's an awkward one, but I think we have to go for a ceasefire. We, uh, the deal has to be ceasefire. The hostages must be released, uh, and food and supplies have to, get, have to get into Gaza. Those are the minimum conditions, surely, for moving forward. Um, you, of course, were a child refugee yourself, and we'll talk much more about that in this interview a little bit later. But given that context, do you find it particularly affecting watching these sorts of scenes? Well, I think fellow human beings suffering, whether it's Israelis or Palestinians, I find it incredibly painful. And I suppose, with my background, it's even closer to me. So sometimes I can't even look at the news anymore at the moment, simply because it's just a terrible, terrible situation. 
and, and people are being killed. A lot of Israelis were killed brutally by Hamas. A lot of Palestinians are now being killed. The Israel-Palestine dispute has always been such a divisive issue here in the UK and around the world, and of course we've seen that the past few weeks. Do you think it's possible that even a decision to help bring refugee children out of Gaza who needed medical assistance, do you think that would prove divisive? Well, well, it, it, yes, it might do, because, because a lot of the Palestinians don't want to clear Gaza of its people, uh, and that would be sort of ethnic cleansing, which, which they fear is what the Israelis want. So the answer is no, it would have to be very, very limited. I would only want us to help to get out of that terrible region, children particularly, but people who are in urgent need of medical help or urgently need of some form of family reunion. Otherwise, otherwise it's, it wouldn't be acceptable. So it would be a, limit, a limited scheme, but I just think it, uh, it's something that should be explored. In any case, you know, we're getting serious refugee situations at intervals in the world. And I think Britain, in conjunction with other countries, I think it's got to be done in conjunction with them, Britain should have in place some scheme whereby in an emergency, you know, we could help people. And we don't have that in place. Every time there's a crisis, we have to improvise. And I think we should be thinking ahead. Crisis, whether it's Syria, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's whether it's Eritrea, Somalia, or wherever it is. These are all crises, and I think we should be better prepared for them. You've obviously spoken so much about this issue in different contexts over recent years, in Syria and Afghanistan and Ukraine. Do you sort of feel like you're banging your head against the wall a little bit or do you sort of understand the pressures this, the government's under and, and, and do you understand why they don't always listen to what you're saying? <laughs> well, I think we're, we were handling this a bit better some years ago than we are now. I, I think hostility towards asylum seekers and refugees is appalling and we're seeing too much of that from the Home Secretary, I'm afraid, and I regret that because if local communities are to be supportive of vulnerable people who've been through terrible experiences in, say, the conflict in Syria or in Afghanistan, then I think we have to provide a welcoming environment. And if senior government ministers use expressions which, which are hostile to people coming in, whether they call them invaders or whatever it is, and that's appalling. And, and the most recent outburst by, by the Home Secretary about saying that people demonstrating in support of the Palestinians uh, were indulging in hate crimes or some word like that, I think, I think that's not right either. Surely people are allowed to demonstrate in support of Israel or in support of the Palestinians. Notwithstanding that, we have seen reports of big increases in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitist abuse in the UK over the last few weeks. That must be profoundly depressing for you to hear. Utterly depressing. Whether it's anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, it is absolutely depressing. Unfortunately, it's affecting other European countries as well. But we've got to deal with it. And we've got to deal with it by having leadership from the politicians at the top, particularly government ministers. I want to talk about your extraordinary life because all of this that you're saying now obviously comes... In, into the context of, of your amazing experiences, particularly in the early years of your life, how, how much can you remember about life before you came to the UK? Well, I can remember some things. Look, I can remember we were living in Prague. I can, I can remember my father was Jewish, my mother wasn't. My father said he would leave Prague if the Nazis came in. He told his uncle and aunt, that that's what he was doing, and they said they'd take their chance, and tragically, in 1942, they were taken to Auschwitz. So my father disappeared as soon as the Germans came in in March 1939. I was at school. We had to tear a picture of 
Czech president, President Benish, out of our school books and sticking a picture of Hitler. There were German soldiers everywhere. My mother tried to leave and was refused permission, although she escaped later on, but she was refused permission. So she put me on a kinder transport. And I still remember the Prague station, anxious parents saying goodbye to their children, possibly for the last time in their lives, German soldiers with swastikas in the background, and off the train went. When we got to Holland, I didn't know anybody, I was six. Uh, when we got to the Dutch border and the older ones cheered, it was dark by then, and the older ones cheered because they were out of reach of the Nazis. I understood it was significant, but I didn't know why. Uh, I was looking for windmills and wooden shoes, because that's what I knew about Holland. I didn't see any of those either. And we got to the, the, the Hook of Holland, boat to Harwich, and then, then the train to Liverpool Street. It must have been a bewildering experience for a six-year-old to, to see a father disappear and be told that this political things that you presumably don't really understand are happening. When you look back on it, is it traumatising or is it just, do you just accept it? I don't know. I can remember things that happened much more than I can remember what I felt about mm. it at the time. Mm. All I know is, look, I was lucky enough to be met by my father. Some of them were met by family, others weren't, and others caught up with their family later or never saw them again. But my mum had put some sandwiches into a little backpack and my father saw me arrive and he said, but you haven't eaten anything. So for two days I'd eaten nothing. So I suppose it must have been traumatic, but I don't remember a sense of trauma as a six-year-old. How would I understand trauma? All, all I know is I was on a train with people I didn't know and it seemed an interminably long journey. I bet it did. Did you know your father would be there at the other end? Were you expecting to see him? Well, my mum had said to me that I was going to England to see my father and that meant something to me. So the answer is yes. So we had dog tags on. We had to be ticked off, each of us, at Liverpool Street Station and, and, and assigned to a family member or a foster family. And and did he have somewhere he was living in London? Did you then live with him in London? for? A uh, he was living in a in a bed sit in Belsize Park. Well, they all were, the refugees from, from Central Europe. They all went to Swiss College or Belsize Park. So he had a bed sit there. And, yeah, and he sent me to a little school for a few days so I could learn English because I spoke Czech and German, didn't speak much English at that point, well, not at all. And then he was anxious about whether my mum would ever get out. And how did she get out? Well, having been refused, they threw her down the stairs, this German Gestapo place, and said, permission refused. This is while I was still in Prague. And she landed in a heap at the bottom of the stairs and the only thing she remembered before she worked out if anything was broken was they threw a passport down after her, which gave her hope. And somehow or other, she got an exit permit. I never discovered how. The exit permit meant she arrived in London on the 31st of August, and the next day Germany attacked Poland, and there would be no chance of coming. So it was the last train of all. My father then died soon afterwards, so it was just my mum and me. And and you moved to Greater Manchester well, eventually. quickly? or No, we moved to Northern Ireland where my father had been offered a job by a fellow refugee who'd escaped earlier with some money. And then my father had a heart attack and died. And my mum then went to Manchester. And she had some fellow, fellow refugees from Central Europe. She went to Manchester. She slept on their sofa. And she sent me... The Czech government ran a boarding school for Czech kids refugee kids, not all kinder transport kids, in the middle of Wales. So I went there for two and a half years while my mother found a, a bed sitter to live in in Manchester. It sounds like an incredibly difficult time for both of you. What Do you remember it that way? Well, I, I remember being, being worried that my mum was staying with these friends, sleeping on their sofa, and I was at this Czech school. I had no home, I had no address, I had nothing. 
you know, I didn't know where I belonged. And I was very anxious that something might happen and I would never know how to find my mother. So I, I was anxious, yes, I remember that. But then she found a bed sitting and I go, go to Manchester for the holidays and so on. So, yeah, it was difficult difficult for her because she didn't speak much English and she started scrubbing floors in a British restaurant in Cheatham Hill. And, and did you form bonds with other kids who'd got out of Eastern Europe a little like you? Did you find sort of kindred spirits in that way? Yes, I did, in two ways. One is at the Czech school, and one or two of them I stayed in touch with for quite some time. And the other thing was that we started having reunions with Nicky Winton, he was the person who organised the Kindertransport from Prague and uh, with friends, but he organised it. And we had reunions. And, of course, his birthday parties were quite famous events, either at the Czech Embassy in London or at, at his house in Maidenhead. And so a lot of us gathered together. So we formed a sort of a camaraderie of people whose lives had been saved by Nicky Winter. And he was obviously an extraordinary man and his, his life has been talked about and written about. How aware were you at the time of, of him as a figure, of someone who... Not at all. I knew I'd come on a kinder transport. I knew nothing about him until much later when he appeared on television. And then gradually the story came out. He was a very modest person. And the story came out uh, and then I got to know him pretty well and we, we became friends and you know I used to enjoy meeting him and on one occasion I think it was about a, on his 102nd birthday I said Nicky how are you he said well I'm fine from the neck upwards <laughs> but he stayed entirely coherent till just before he died but before that he was sharp as anything absolutely on the ball loved talking about politics loved talking about refugees and so on it was such a privilege to get to know him and to meet him and to be a friend of his how welcoming a place was England in the 1940s to a young kid from Eastern Europe? Well, I, I don't know. Hard to say. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm. I, I, look, I had to learn. I had to go to school, obviously, and I, and um, I had to learn English. And as a six-year-old or seven-year-old, you learn English pretty quickly because uh, to survive in the school playground, you learn the language. So I think they thought. Um, I was a bit odd, different. Uh, but, but no, it wasn't unwelcoming. I, I, I don't remember that. Now, whether my mother had a more difficult time, certainly later on when she was applying for jobs, she was number two in the school meal service. Her boss left. She acted up for six months, applied for the top job and was turned down, acted up for another six months. Nobody was appointed. And then again applied and was turned down. And she heard somebody say, we're not giving a job to that bloody foreigner. She was incredibly upset. You know, I just wish I could have helped her a bit more because she, she, it was really painful for her. And she trips around trying to find jobs. And eventually found a job. It took a lot of time. She went for interviews all over the place. And it was a really tough, tough life for her. And I, you know, if I'd been a bit older, a bit more mature, I could have been supportive. And I know, looking back, I know now that I wasn't able to be supportive. And I wish I had been. Coming up in part two, Lord Dubbs explains how he got into politics, his experiences in the House of Commons and House of Lords, and remembers his first parliamentary question to Margaret Thatcher. I was so bewildered that here was I with my backhand asking the British Prime Minister a question in the House of Commons that I nearly forgot what I was going to ask her. Stay with us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. As a young man finding his way in post-war Britain, Alf Dubbs had one interest above all others. I was, right from about the age of 13 or 14, I was passionately interested in politics, I think partly because I was trying to understand why what had happened to me had happened. And so I followed all the news and so on in a way that none of my friends were, were remotely interested. And then I thought, well, maybe I'd like to have a go in politics. If evil men can do the terrible things in politics that the Nazis had done, maybe politics could also be used to change the process. And I set my sights on becoming a local councillor because I felt with my background I could never make it to Parliament. Uh, and I became a councillor, but a friend of mine persuaded me to. The MP said, oh, you have a go, have a go, why not? That's interesting. And why not? Why did you feel your background would stop you? Well, because I felt I hadn't got the background, I hadn't got the family connections, I hadn't got, I hadn't got the experience, I hadn't got the language, you know, I had no history in the Labour Party, any, any of that sort of stuff. I just felt I was floating about a bit as a foreigner. I was elected to the Commons the day Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister, uh, and I, I had a go at parliamentary seats before that, but that was the one I, I just won by 332 votes. Limey. Close call. <laughs> uh, and the first time I stood up and asked Margaret Thatcher a question, I was so bewildered that here was I, with my backhand, asking the British Prime Minister a question in the House of Commons that I nearly forgot what I was going to ask her. <laughs> but it was it sort of thought went through my mind, what am, I, what, am I, what, what am I doing here? This is amazing. And then I thought to myself, what a fantastic country to give me such opportunities. It was an amazingly long journey for you to get there all that way, not just geographically, but as you say, politically, you, I think you stood for a seat three or four times, didn't you, before? Yeah, I mean, the interesting one was in 1970, I was a Labour candidate for the cities of London and Westminster, central constituency in Britain, and my opponent was Christopher Tugendhat. so you had the spectacle of a refugee from Vienna competing with a refugee from Prague for the central constituency in, in London. Incredible. And the media never picked that up. Incredible. I'd like to think we would have done now. <laughs> oh, undoubtedly. But basically, just the media, media didn't pick it up. And then I, I was um, put on a committee dealing with the British Nationality Act, or whatever it was. And, and there was I, and by then a naturalised Brit, having a quite an interesting part to play in, in, in developing the, the law for British citizenship. And did you still feel like an outsider once you were were an insider in Parliament? Now, did that last, that sense that you're describing? no. Look, I decided early on, and my mother was still alive, in fact, in my teens, for my mother, the life in Prague, when she had a husband, and she, you know, we were 
moderately well off. For my mother, that was a golden age. Now, it wasn't a golden age for me because I could hardly remember it. And so, for me, I decided at that point, I can't live in the past. I have to live in the future. And that was a decision which I sort of made almost subconsciously. And I think it's been helpful because I've, I've never felt I should look into the past. Okay, I've been in Prague and I've had a little twinge occasionally, mm-hmm. but that's about, the, that's about the most that there's been. I have, yeah, I've, I've always seen my, myself as British. I've seen my, seen my, my identity as British and I've seen myself as being in this country and this is me and this is where I am. And what was Parliament like as a place in the 1980s? And it must be very, very different to how it is now, or at least I imagine it was. Well, I suppose so. Uh, I mean, there were far more men there. It was predominantly mm-hmm. ma- male-dominated, so uh, that wasn't very healthy for British politics. And then, of course, the Labour government had gone down under Jim Callaghan, and I got to meet him, got to know him. I sat next to him in the Commons after that, me sitting next to the former Prime Minister. And uh, and, and then there was a tough period of, of, of Thatcher. Uh, and, uh, I mean, her, her politics were awful. I was against pretty well everything she did. And and so we were, we were fighting what Prime Minister was damaging this country very much. On the other hand, compared to what was to follow, she had the merit of being honest. Awful in her politics, but she was honest. And she knew what she wanted. She wasn't flailing about like Boris Johnson, and she, you know, so to, so to that extent, at least we knew what the what the opposition was, and there was anyway. After after two terms, I lost my seat, and I was out of it. L- lots, good time. lots of your colleagues, even more so than than now, although it is still true now. You know, are, are people from very privileged positions in the sort of English class system, if you like. You come from such a different place to that. Was that weird hanging around with those kinds of people? Well, I found I never met, when I got the Commons, and particularly on the Toys side, I never met such posh people. You know, I, this, this was not me. And even in, in the Labour Party, there was a mixture. There were a group of people who'd been miners. You know, they, they weren't all posh at all in the Labour Party then. Uh, in fact, there was more of a working class basis for the Labour Parliamentary Labour Party in in, in, in when I was elected to, to, to the Commons than perhaps there is today. Mm. And that's the nature of changes in our society. But there were very posh things about the Commons. I mean, not as much as about the Lords when I got there. <laughs> Can you imagine? Some posh elements there. But it didn't put you off. Some people turn up at Parliament and go, what is this place? This is too strange. This is not real life. It's not for me. You didn't feel anything like that. Well, I had the solidarity, the sense of solidarity with, with, with my colleagues. And there were some good people in, in in the Commons who weren't at all posh, who were just people like me, except they'd been born in this country. And and so that sense of solidarity sees one through the difficulties and the awfulnesses of some of the things that Thatcher was doing in damaging this country. I mean, I thought the miners' strike was a very traumatic occasion, and 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 it, that that had a deep effect on me. I think. You spent your whole time as an MP in in opposition, and as you say, I think lost your seat in 1987. Is that yes. right? Tell me about that. Was that a shock to, to lose? I could see it coming. You know, the, the the constituency was being gentrified, and in those days, gentrification meant Tory votes. Not like now. Nowadays, it's a bit different. Interesting. Uh, yes, true. And, and yeah, it it was always on the cards. I was going to lose either that election or or, or the following election. So it was it was there. You're always boosted a bit by your local party members who think you're definitely going to win. But it it was not a total surprise. It's still a sudden thing. One day you're centre of attention in an election campaign, and the next day you're down and out. Yes. <laughs> (laughs) And that's the brutality of politics. 
Yeah, but then if you're not prepared for it, then you shouldn't go into politics in the first place. I mean, that's that's the way it is. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was a tough experience, I suppose, in some ways, because I, I was unemployed for a year and I had to find a job and so on. But anyway. But then you had a second act in Parliament in the House of Lords. Tell me about that. Tell me what the Lords was like then and is like now. Oh, well, I was phoned up Margaret Beckett, who was leader of the Labour Party, after John Smith died and before Tony Blair became leader, Margaret Beckett was, and she appointed three of us to the Lords. The Tories only allowed three. There were 10 or, 10 or 12 deaths among the Labour peers. So three, three replacements, we were very thin on the ground. And, you know, I was immediately... I was immediately made a whip and, you know, all sorts of things because we were just sort, sort of people. And this was a different world altogether. I mean, the, the, some of the Tories and the Lords, they were pretty grand people. I can imagine. And, and they're people I'd never sort of ever met before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so was, and that was, that was kind of a, a, weir, a weird experience. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, Tony Blair, when he became Prime Minister, I was sent off to Northern Ireland, which is a great privilege to work with Mo Moland as a junior minister there. So I spent a lot of time in Belfast, or flying backwards and forwards. And that was a very interesting, privileged time to be there. Well, that's an incredible time in that process. And the thing was, we were not... What was exhilarating, even though terrible things happened, like the Omer bombing and so on, terrible things happened, but the exhilaration came from the fact that we felt we were on a peace process and we were getting somewhere, whereas previously governments had had to contain a very difficult uh, situation with terrorism and so on, mm. and the fact that we were, we were, we were there on a positive mission. And Tony Blair's first speech as prime minister was: I was sitting about five yards away from him, putting down markers for the peace process. And then Mo Merlin was passionately interested in, and brilliant as the secretary of state. There had been good secretaries of state before. But they'd been Tories, but they'd been a bit patrician. Whereas Mo Merlin was brilliant. She was she was touchy feely. She was a street politician, and initially they all loved her in Northern Ireland. Then the Unionists fell out with her. But but she made a great contribution to peace in Northern Ireland, as did Tony Blair. And since then, you've you've really made your name as a peer campaigning on refugee issues. I would say certainly while I've been a political journalist for the last ten eleven years, I mean that ultimately must be something so close to your heart, of course. I was always involved in refugees. I was on the front bench in the Commons dealing with immigration and, uh, and race relations. And then once I got a job, when I lost my seat in the Commons, I was for seven years chief executive of the Refugee Council. So it wasn't a totally new experience. However, after the Syrian crisis, when I was in the Lords, I was talking to Yvette Cooper, who was chair of the Home Affairs Committee in, in the Commons, and we were discussing this, and she suggested to me I should think about putting an amendment down about child refugees. So actually the idea came from her. And I put down an amendment, and that was quite a... It was an amendment that we should take unaccompanied child refugees from Europe. And, and that set all sorts of things in motion. For example, Theresa May asked me to go and see her and asked me to withdraw the amendment. And I said, why? And she said, well, if these children come, others will follow. And I said, we cannot turn our backs on young people who are in awful conditions, in the jungle in Calais, as it then was, or, or, or sleeping rough all over Europe. We cannot turn our backs on them. We've got to do something for them. And it passed the Lords easily. It then got turned down just in the Commons. It then got back to the Lords, at which point something dramatic happened. 
public opinion suddenly realised what was going on. I think there were pictures on television of Alan Kurdi, a Syrian boy, drowned on the Mediterranean beach. And I think people saw this and they suddenly realised that what this was about was actually young people who'd been through the most appalling experiences. And public opinion became supportive. So when somebody shouted at me once in the street in London, I thought it was abuse because politicians are used to that. But no, it was somebody saying, keep going with your amendment. And what was interesting was one or two toy ministers came to me and said, keep going with your amendment. And I said, but you shouldn't be saying that because, you know, it's not government policy. No mind, just keep going. However, government policy then changed. Theresa May summoned me in again and said, we propose to accept your amendment. And the reason is that the public were exerting pressure on Tory MPs. We, it wasn't a party political issue, by the way. We wanted it to cost party. But they began exerting pressure on Tory MPs. Um, and so it was likely the government were going to lose the vote. So they conceded. They then played a dirty trick and said, we're going to limit the number to 480. They got the 480 by allegedly saying that was the maximum number of people that local authorities could find foster families to look after. Well, we, along with Safe Passage, one of the NGOs that I work closely with, we did a survey and we discovered there were 1,500 places just like that. So that was a bit deceitful. Do you find it hard to fathom politicians on the other side of this debate? Do you, you know, do, do you find them unempathetic or do you see there's different political pressures that they might face? Well, I try and understand people who have a different view from mine. It helps in politics to understand what their arguments are, even if one doesn't agree with them. I, I find some of the miserable attitudes uh, uh, awful. I found that the most recent legislation, uh, the Illegal Migration Bill or whatever it's called, that legislation was awful because basically it was to stop people coming on boats. Now, people traffickers are horrible people, but to stop them coming on boats, they decided that they would make it a criminal offence to help somebody cross on a boat, and none of them would be allowed to claim refugee status, a complete breach of international agreements, a complete breach of the 1951 Geneva Convention. Absolutely, how low are we sunk? And then, because the British courts and the European Court of Human Rights um, didn't like the Rwanda plan, hasn't been stopped yet, it's still coming before the courts on appeal, but um, uh, they then said, well, some government ministers said we should, we should leave the European Convention on Human Rights and leave the European Court on Human Rights. These are terrible decisions to make for a country that helped to set up some of these human rights measures and a country that has always been regarded internationally as a good adherent of international human rights standards. And now what are we doing? It's, it's appalling. The counterpoint that some of these politicians would surely give is that actually if you look at public attitudes, there is a lot of concern about levels of immigration. There is a concern about the number of people who come and claim asylum here and therefore the politicians have a sort of responsibility to, to you know, respond to that. And I understand that. I do understand that. Um, well, you know, we are, I think, 17 out of 18 European countries in terms of the, the number of people we take in relation to the size of our population. So, you know, it isn't quite the, the, the crisis that the government make it out to be. But yes, people traffickers are nasty people. And I think the way forward... We've got to have a better agreement with the French. I think by international agreement we can move forward. But when Liz Truss was asked about attitudes to the French and she didn't know whether the French were on our side or, or the enemy, I mean, that was most shocking, shocking, infantile, stupid, anti-British comment to make. But also we've got to 
make sure that we educate people. If our Home Secretary says that asylum seekers are, are invaders and enemy, invaders are the enemy. I think we have to have a more positive attitude, and it can be done. We've seen good examples of good practice where asylum seekers are welcomed and they play a useful part in our society. Look, the ones that are kids, the ones I've talked to, they've said to me, all we want is to complete our education. We're desperate for that. The older ones say, all we want is to work. They're not allowed to work. And they don't want social security. They want to work and they want to make a contribution. That's what they say. Have you been impressed with the way that Ukrainian refugees have been welcomed into the country and brought into communities? I think, yes, I have. It's been good. And there are two reasons for that. One good reason, one bad reason. The good reason is that people have responded because they've seen the terrible situation that goes on they've escaped from in, in, in Ukraine. The bad reason is, of course, they are white. And I think that has influenced things. I'd like to feel it wasn't true, but I think there's an element of that. Nevertheless, we have been positive about Ukrainians. Britain likes to think of itself as a sort of tolerant country and a welcoming country. Do you think that's true? It's a mixture. In some local communities, there's a tremendous sense of support and a belief that we, we have to be supportive of vulnerable people who've come from the most terrible experiences. And, for example, a Syrian boy said to me that he'd seen his uncle or his father killed in front of him by a bomb in Aleppo or Damascus. Terrible experiences. But the more we try and understand what these people have come through, the more we are liable to be sympathetic and be positively supportive. And, and that's a challenge. At the moment, there is a big battle for public opinion between a government hostile to the public being supportive and other people who are saying, yes, we should be supportive and we should do all we can to make people who've been the victims of terrible tragedies manage to pick up the pieces of their lives. Just finally, do you feel optimistic about the future? There's a lot of misery on the news, as you say, especially at the moment. Do you feel positive when you think about the future? I try and say that it's worth throwing myself into these issues because, you know, it may work out a bit. You know, if one refugee child can reach safety in Britain, that is one life that, that we've helped to put on a decent track. And so it's worth it, even for small numbers, to argue. But the situation in the Middle East is so appalling, I, I, I can hardly bear to think about it. But yet we've got to use what little influence we have for the better. And do you have a sense of pride that you've managed to put yourself in a position where you are able to have some influence on this sort of thing? You're a voice that people uh, listen uh, to. Well, you are. You are. The Dubs Amendment is the thing people yeah, still remember. I never called it that. That was the <laughs> media. The, the media called it that. I would. I'd never be so pompous as to. Sorry as, about as that. To call it that. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, I, I'm. I'm gratified that some of the effort. And don't forget, a lot of people work on these things. I happen to have got the publicity because of my background. That's why I'm here. Aren't I? But. Um, I'm gratified that a lot of people are doing this and that together we are managing to at least improve the lives of a small number of people. And that, that's worthwhile. So that's Alf Dubbs, refugee, parliamentarian, campaigner extraordinaire. With his 91st birthday now approaching, he has lost none of his campaigning zeal. And as you just heard, is as prepared to be outspoken about Keir Starmer's refusal to call for a ceasefire in the Middle East as he is about controversial Tory figures such as Suella Braverman and Boris Johnson. His political views will not be to every taste, but his passion and his humanity and his sheer wealth of life experience 
are respected by all in Westminster. And when he speaks on refugee issues, the nation listens. Now whether the government chooses to do so is another matter, but you just know that Alf Dubs will keep on campaigning regardless. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us and maybe leave us a nice review. But before we go, joining me now is Aggie. Hi, Aggie. Hello, how are you doing? We've never done this before. We've never done this before. Very quite exciting. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you like the episode? I actually found it genuinely quite heartbreaking. It sort of was obviously newsy, but the image of him getting on the train, I found genuinely profoundly moving. I know. It's someone I'd always wanted to meet and talk to. It's pretty awesome having him sat in that chair where you are now um, and just hearing it all firsthand is incredible, really. Why don't you tell us about what you can look forward to next week? Okay, so next week, with sort of excellent foresight, uh, I am doing a focus group of ex-civil servants. So obviously this week we've heard in the COVID inquiry, not just Dominic Cummings calling the Cabinet Office terrifyingly shit, but also from (laughs) ex-senior civil servant Helena McNamara. So I have got together five ex-civil servants who are not of the sort of Helen McNamara rank, but instead the sort of some relatively junior and some less junior but just to sit around and talk about what being a civil servant is actually like and they can actually spill the beans because they're not in the civil service anymore exactly oh that's so interesting i can't wait to hear it right well please do tune in next week to hear aggie and the civil servants talking about what life is really like in whitehall um this week my producer was james tyndale of whistledown productions and here at politico my executive producer is christina gonzalez aggie will be back next week as you heard we'll see you then see you then Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.